everybody, and welcome to Season 1 of the Land and Money Podcast, a premier source for knowledge and wisdom in real estate finance, development, and design. My name is Adam Gates, and I'd like to say thank you to anyone and everyone who's listening, wherever and whenever that might be. I'd also like to thank my Season 1 partner, the Urban Land Institute San Antonio Chapter, who are the ones who encouraged me to do this thing, to record really amazing conversations with industry professionals and share them with all of you in a podcast. For season one, we're going to focus exclusively on topics related to housing as a primer for the ULI San Antonio Emerging Trends Housing Summit on January 31st, 2022 in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, It's going to be an awesome half-day event full of speakers and activities and networking so if you hear this before the event be sure to mark your calendars and get your ticket because we're working on a fantastic lineup for that event in episode six we sit down with ben bowman an architect real estate agent real estate broker real estate developer here in san antonio uh ben is aside from being a really impressive hyper-intelligent person. Uh, He's also just a prince of a human being. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope that all of you really enjoy this conversation. And when you get a chance, check out Boston Commons in the Dignity neighborhood in San Antonio. Here it is, guys. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. We're in the studio today with Ben Bowman. Uh, Ben is an architect, real estate developer, and author in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, ben and I went to school together. He started out in architecture and then um, took this sidestep to real estate. He wrote a book called Beat the Lease, Real Estate Investing and the Art of Folding Burden into Abundance. And most recently, he's completed a really beautiful little project on the east side of downtown called Boston Commons. That's a kind of a unique take on a little residential real estate development. And Ben's going to tell us all about it. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. I'm happy to be here. So you and I know each other from architecture school. Uh, I think we were a year apart or so. So you initially set off on this path to become an architect. Um, And when I got back in touch with you a couple of years ago, you were also doing this real estate thing. You'd written this book, um, quite the feat in your uh, mid late twenties. Um, and now you've got this whole little uh, little little empire that you're building. Tell us a little bit about that story. How did uh, how did you sort of direct yourself toward architecture, and then you know simultaneously direct yourself toward real estate? What's that story? Well, thanks for that flattering introduction. I think uh, underscoring all that is kind of a string of confused decisions. <laughs> so um, I, I started and I got into architecture because I applied to two colleges. One was an out-of-state school. One was the University of Texas. Um, went to UT, obviously a much better choice and kind of landed in the architecture program by accident. Um, it was a good program and I know I love building things, but I didn't even really know what architecture was supposed to be at that time. So um wrote an essay about a Chihuly sculpture in the San Antonio library and got in. And um, when I got there, it turned out to be the perfect fit. I mean, I love the people, I love the ideas. And uh, it was really a super fun program to go through, though grueling. Um, So I learned a lot of really good life skills there in addition to the architecture. And um, 
yeah, it was just a fabulous experience and it teaches you a different way to think that is flawed, but pretty powerful. Yeah, for sure. Um, I agree. I, well, I, I enjoyed it less sometimes, but that's, a different, <laughs> that's, that's a different story for a different day. Um, so you got into this, you got into this program, which I, I just, as a sidebar, um, you got saying you got into architecture school kind of by accident is sort of amazing because the architecture school at university of Texas is the most competitive program in the entire university. Um, so just, just throwing that out there, that's impressive just in itself. Um, so you got, you know, exposed to, and, um, in kind of indoctrinated into this world of placemaking and building and designing. Um, and at some point you realize that, um, sort of either real estate was a part of architecture or that architecture was a part of real estate and kind of turned your focus a little bit to the real estate side. How did that happen? Yeah. So, um, excellent segue into the next part of the story, which is after I got out of school, I went to go do what everybody does and practiced for a well-established firm that does big work, um, super good experience. And so I was there, I had the great fortune to work with some really super charismatic people and developers that were doing important things downtown. Um, and so that was just totally magic. And I loved working on that stuff. Um, but one of the issues that I had with it is that my role was, um, I hope meaningful, but totally replaceable. So all the while I was tracking this conventional path out of school, uh, we were also, my wife and I, who was just my girlfriend at the time, um, we had lived in a fourplex in a downtown neighborhood and really loved it, but it was in really bad shape. And, you know, we were being frugal and decided, look, it's, it's time to like, get past some of these issues of open sewage pipes and things like that. So he said, look, let's go buy a house. And then we got to thinking about it and said, wait a minute, let's take a step back. I don't know if that's if that conventional track is really what we wanted. So we ended up buying a triplex in Monta Vista with an FHA 203K loan, which is a residential product product that allows you to do some renovations along with the purchase at like the super low down payment price. So it's like three and a half percent. So I think we spent like 20 grand and got into this triplex and um, became trial by fire mom and pop landlords, which was also an awesome experience. Um, and all the while architecture was going on in my, my work days. Um, and then we liked it and that triplex turned out to be awesome. And so we said, look, let's just do another house and do another house and do another house. So a few years into it, we had renovated a handful of small residential properties and um my night work and my day work started to kind of come to a heads because the whole time in i was a young architect you know you have to go through these things but i was doing really fun work that was not it was somebody else's life work and i respect everybody involved in that a ton but um the spreadsheet stopped making sense for me. So at that time we said, look, it's time you need to leave and transition to focusing on the real estate side. And so through all those purchases and renovations and leases, I had gotten a real estate license and then a broker license. So I'm a real estate broker also. Um, and as that started to spin up, it just became really clear on the financial side that 
being a young architect is hard to justify when you can do some of these other things. Sure. Um, so that's kind of how all that came to be. And the book really happened at the transition point between focusing on architecture and I would, I'd just say self-directed work, you know, cause I do a lot of things, but um, that was kind of a, a mile marker on the way and an important tool for myself to understand, you know, what we had done and where we were going and why it was important. And um, that some of these really basic things in life, like your own housing can like really dramatically shape how everything turns out in the end. Um, so that's kind of a rambling explanation of the book and real estate. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Uh, and I want to actually just jump into the book a little bit more. Um, just knowing what I know about you and your path and us being friends for a little while, the book seems like something that is on the one hand, a great, the output is great. It's, it's a, it's a fantastic resource. I sort of jump in and thumb through it from time to time um, just to refresh myself on some things because the, the structure of it is very easy to understand. It also seems like, like it was an exercise, like a learning exercise in itself for you. Or I would imagine that aside from your trial by fire, sort of learned by experience, that there was, there must have been some research involved in this book, getting clear on sort of ideas and mechanisms um, that would help you along the way. So can you speak a little bit to um, the process of putting this book together and in particular, the learning process? I mean, what did you, and I'll frame this differently. As an architect, we have exposure to a certain facet of real estate development and placemaking, but there's a lot that we don't get exposed to. So coming into the real estate world, as an architect and writing this book and gaining the experience that you gained, what did you learn that you didn't already know? And what were the most important lessons and maybe the most surprising lessons? Um, well, to go back, your original synopsis was totally correct. I think the person who's gotten the most out of this book is for sure me and not to downplay the book, but it's not widely read. And uh, some of the ideas are, relatively introductory. Um, but I think the best lesson was assembling all those things into a, a structure that made it clear that these are the foundational blocks of what you need to be able to do this. So I think for sure some research went into it and I wish I could go back and put some more time into it. But um, the realization that those are it really is that simple. You know, it doesn't need to be super complex and a pro forma can be short and sweet. And, you know, that embracing that it can be as complicated as you want it to be, I think is a really helpful lesson. And I don't know if there is a standard path into development other than working for an established developer, but I know a lot of really talented developers come from completely different backgrounds and it's a it's a knowledge gathering exercise and you have to want to figure it out. And there's, it's just so complicated that it's the only way. So that was kind of the first step in understanding that these are the tools you need. This is enough for now. Keep working on it and you'll get there. How was the, how was the 
let me get let me frame this question correctly um in my own experience which is limited and i'm kind of just trying to get started in some development projects um the finance part is what's been the most opaque to me like i've had the the least exposure to it um you know you mentioned the particular type of loan that you got for your first duplex um and understanding and finding all of those different products and 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 mechanisms and tools that help these projects to get financed and just the the act of finding money and and putting the numbers together and everything can I think is foreign to a lot of people and can seem daunting. Um, did you know anything about that world kind of going into this? Did you already have a background or were you really sort of learning from scratch? Um, I, I had no background really and no formal education. And I would say that that is not a hurdle. Um, I think if you're good with basic arithmetic, you can figure it out. Um, it is complicated and there's a ton of information, but you don't need, you don't need to be super sophisticated, especially on the residential traditional one to four family loans to figure out what the big levers are. I think it, there, there are a lot of branches of lending and they're all quite different. And so our most recent project was my first pass with commercial finance. Um, and as a sidebar, I, we should definitely, definitely give a lot of credit to Texas Champion Bank and specifically Daniel Walker at Texas Champion Bank, um, because going into your first commercial loan can, again, be daunting. But, you know, if you have a good partner that's willing to help you understand and answer your questions, and those guys have been super easy to work with, um, it is, does not need to be as big a hurdle as it might seem. That's a great I don't know, just a great point to emphasize is, and I guess the message is there is find a good banker and have a great relationship with them. Yes, Daniel Walker, I would totally recommend you approach those guys on your next project if it seems like they might be a good fit for you. Excellent. But, but yeah, and mortgage brokers are really helpful too. Um, in my real limited experience with them, you're one step removed. Um, and so those guys can help you bridge the knowledge gap for sure. And it'll It'll give you a leg up. And if, if you need to ask a dumb question, you can ask them and, you know, no questions dumb to them. Um, so I would also think about that route. Excellent. So what did you, you spoke a little bit to practicing architecture and kind of what was, what was kind of missing from architecture uh, to get you into real estate Let's reverse that. What have you learned about architecture, uh, the practice, the physical reality of architecture, the business of architecture? Like, what have you learned about capital A architecture from your experience in real estate after practicing architecture? That is a fascinating question that I could probably talk for an hour about. But I think the biggest thing that I've taken away and to step back and provide some context, I am for sure a one-man band developer. Like I do the vast majority of development tasks in addition to the architecture and real estate and I'm the general contractor. So 
wearing all those hats at once, it gets real easy to understand what's the most important thing. And backing that into architecture, when you learn to be a design architect in particular, which I think is what a lot of educational paths focus on, you know, you're learning how to design beautiful things, not functional things. Um, when you take that to your own project, it, it becomes super clear that, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, however you look at it, the reality of it is that the vast majority of construction projects are driven by a performa or a budget or some kind of spreadsheet. And so when you're learning, that's never really clear and people mention it in passing, but I think as an architect, you're doing a disservice to your client if you're not designing to a budget and if you're not trying to make the architecture shine through the spreadsheet. Um, so that's, I think, the biggest one is that design is ultra important and the focus of my work as much as I can make it. However, you have to be practical about that and um, all great built structures are either passion projects or embrace the fact that there are significant financial constraints. Right. And I can echo that and just say that, you know, there are, there are always financial constraints, right? Like even on the most ambitious big dollar projects, uh, there are very few where I think your client is just willing to, to write checks forever, never knowing uh, <laughs> what that, what that limit's going to be. Right. Especially knowing that people that have been operating in this world of finance and have accumulated enough wealth to take on uh, an architectural project of any kind are generally pretty smart with money. Um, and the reason, the reason they have that wealth is because they understand it and they manage it. Um, and so I, I agree completely. It, for me, honestly, it's just been the last few years that I have embraced the reality that architecture is a, the practice of architecture is a facet of real estate development um, in, in the modern world, right? Um, we're a part of that business, not the other way around. Yes, exactly. I, and I think that that is not clear to most recent graduates, you know, I, I was told once by somebody smarter than me who was told by someone smarter than them that the architects are just the help. And mm -hmm. that isn't derogatory, but it is for sure the case. Yeah, right. We, uh, we are hired, most certainly. And we're, we're a line item on a spreadsheet, just like, um, just like the drywall guys, you know, just like the, just like the guys that are going to come and uh, clean up the landscape. We're, we're just one one of a hundred or more. Yep. And so let's turn now to your most recent project. Uh, I think so far your most ambitious project um, where you have sort of, I think, taken all of these parts of your identity and experience and put them together. It is called Boston Commons. It's located just east of downtown in San Antonio. Um, and it's, you've taken kind of a different angle at this one. Um, I believe you guys call it a co-living community. Um, and it's, well, there's a whole lot of detail that we can get into. I've, obviously you were there. I drove by every few days to wave at you and see what the progress was like and just 
loved it every time I drove by, but I've never gotten the full story. Tell us about Boston Commons and how it happened and what you learned. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, it's still really fresh too. So I was hanging toilet paper roll holders yesterday. So it's easy to get stuck in the weeds, but all this started and I'm sitting in the project now. Um, all this started three or four years ago when we got a site that we didn't really know exactly what to do with. Uh, this was back when we were renovating single family homes and it was a single family home on a large lot. Uh, super cool 1890s Caliche block building. Um, and so after much hemming and hawing, uh, we ended up passing that building on to another local architect who's been a fabulous steward of that structure. Um, and we kept the remainder of the land for a multifamily residential infill project that we had always imagined would be missing middle housing, um, which has been the strand throughout. Uh, we're really targeting a scale of housing that is economical in its efficiency in that we're, we've got 10 units in this project. So it's really tough to build a single one to four residential structure that makes financial sense. But I think we've just crossed that tipping point um, on this 10 building project that it does start to make sense for us, the way that we're approaching it. Um, so we took that remainder of the land and developed that, which is was originally three parcels into three duplexes and three single family homes, all of which is rental product. And, um, we staged it too. So stage one of that project was we built the first single family home and my wife and I moved into it. Um, shortly thereafter had a baby, our first, which was uh, quite the exercise in framing and napping at the same time. Right. Um, so yeah, we've been living on the project since uh, construction began. And then we halfway through phase two of the project, which includes the rest of these single family houses and duplexes, we got the opportunity to purchase from a friend an adjacent lot across the alley, um, which we have annexed into the project. So over the course of 18 months, we built six or seven residential structures, small, um, design forward, but you know, conventional residential construction for the most part. Um, and so stage one of the project is Boston Commons proper and stage three of the, pro I guess stages one and two are Boston Commons proper and stage three of the project is a small co-living facility, which is a six bedroom, six bathroom house uh, with some shared components and some private components, which is a pretty fun program. Um, and we just received our last CFO, which was for phase three structure uh, last week. So we're just wrapping up construction now, and uh, it's been a fantastic project. I think the things that make it stand out are that we have assembled three or four residential sites in a way that is focused on an interior courtyard that blurs those boundaries significantly. So if you came to see our project, you would never guess that those were four residential sites, but it's one of the one of the tools that we require to be able to do this kind of, I mean, we're essentially low density, but people might call it a little bit higher density because it's not a single house on a single lot. Um, but we've used that tool to be able to build something that is um, connected whole in an environment that, you know, encourages single family construction on conventional lots in a historic district. Um, which is another design constraint that 
we have totally embraced, but creates an overlay of complexity. Right. And so I actually didn't know that it was all different lots. Um, I thought that that old Kalichi blockhouse was sort of the main residence on a single large lot that you guys then split off so that you can sell that house and develop the rest. So this is even more fascinating to me because one, as you said, you've created this, this community with a single courtyard that uh, sort of crosses all of those boundaries, but you also managed to, you did create some pretty high density. So I wonder, did you have to um, seek out any special, any special variances from the city for uh, floor area ratios or uh, impervious cover or any facet of the project to make it work this way? Um, this is where the architecture piece is really helpful. Um, we approached it in such a way that any variance required would be pretty minor. So I think we have one administrative variance only for our parking and a series of agreements with ourselves about cross access. Um, and that relates to the parking. So we've got aggregated parking, um, to one end of the project in a way that makes it completely subsidiary to everything else, which is a wonderful design aspect. We have like no curb cuts along our primary street. Um, and in order to do that, we were required to make the case that it was a good idea. And I think objectively it's clear that it is. And so we went through that process on a, a parking exception. And then we've also the ownership entity has an agreement with itself that all sites are able to access other sites in order to get to that parking, uh, which is something that we functionally would choose to do anyway. Um, the project's named Boston Commons because we've got a, a small shared program, which includes like a fire pit and a community gathering space and a community dining table and a barbecue. And that's the kind of amenity that's really hard to include on a small scale project. Um, so I think that's a huge plus for us, but also would require functional cross access anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really much ado about nothing, but we were largely compliant with city standards. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I just, I continue to love this thing. Um, so you, even though you're a practicing architect, you have your license, you have, uh, you're very talented, you have design capabilities. For this project, you chose to partner with another architect for the execution. You partnered with Cotton Estes from uh, High Cotton Architects. Uh, tell us about your decision to do that. Why partner with somebody else if you have all the capabilities yourself? Uh, well, yeah, thanks for those nice words. Um, you know, I wear most hats on this project and would like to think I'm smart enough to know where my sweet spot is. And Cotton is one of the most talented young architects I've ever met um, and just a really sweet personality. And she's really an important part of this neighborhood. And it was clear from the beginning that her design talents complemented my execution talents. And, and she performed all of the heavy lifting on the design work. Um, and I'm the architect of record and, you know, draw a bunch of details and that stuff. But um, she, she was 
unequivocally the best addition to the project team and we can't give her enough credit. I mean, the initial diagram for this project in comparison to, you know, what Cotton drove us towards in schematic design is worth a good laugh. I mean, it's, it, she was just a phenomenal piece of it. So the difference between what you thought you wanted and needed and what she showed you you wanted and needed? Oh yeah, that's, I mean, it really is, it's quite the comparison. But we, I think where, where the architecture part was helpful on that is I think we gave Cotton an exceptional program and something to design around that was very clear, um, which is an important piece of giving somebody what they want. Um, and I think, <laughs> not to steal all the credit, but <laughs> we provided, I think what she needed to be able to do a good job. And that's hard to do if you're not familiar with the practice. Right. You once told me as you were walking around the site, uh, because as I said, I drove by all the time and you were always out there uh, somewhere near your red Toyota with your big, with your big hat on either <laughs> hammering, hammering something or, you know, physically working on the project in some capacity. And I, I think I asked you why at one point, and you said that um, self-performing was a critical part of the pro forma. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, yeah, to say it bluntly, it was the only way we could afford to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, aside from that, in hindsight, I think it was a really important part of the quality of delivery we were able to get at what is a pretty modest construction budget. Um, we're we're building stuff that's nicer than other people are building for the same hard construction price per square foot. And that's specifically because there's a lot of sweat equity buried in it. Um, but, you know, if somebody else had executed this project for us with a traditional GC fee, it would have done two things. Um, it would have drove our quality down significantly and probably also would have pulled out our schedule because no one cares as much as you do. Right. Um, and the other thing it would have done is introduced a significant level of risk that I would have been naive to in the beginning, because if you've got someone capable of building half of a block near downtown, um, they're probably sophisticated, but they probably have a good amount of other work going on, which creates cross project risk in that, you know, if lumber spikes as it did, and they're on the hook on a budget and all of a sudden, you know, they've got to find a lot of money to cover this unforeseen construction spike in wood, then your project's at risk, even if your project has nothing to do with it. Right. So, you know, I know that if I tell somebody the GC is going to get something done by Wednesday to keep it moving, I'm going to be out there doing it. So it's done on Wednesday so we can keep things moving. So that comes with a lot of personal pain, but the, risk mitigation and the level of certainty you have around the control of the project is pretty attractive. Um, but there are also limitations, right? Like this project is pushing my personal capacity. And so like we, I, as a developer have grown a lot over the course of this project and have, you know, way bigger arms to wrap around things now than I used to, but there's a point when that's just not sustainable and the lack of diversification of personnel is also risky in a way. So it's, uh, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. Sure. You mentioned liability. Um, was there any extra sort of 
legwork or convincing that had to happen on your part towards one, the financial institution and two, um, your insurance companies to kind of convince them that it was, uh, that you were capable enough to pull off the project that, um, they, you know, you, that you didn't need another, you know, bonded, uh, bonded licensed GC to take on the project. I mean, it's there, there is, there is some risk for those groups in saying like, yeah, this one guy's going to do it all. Um, was that, were they open and receptive to that, receptive to that the whole time? Or did that require um, any other conversations? That's a great question. And the answer is um, both ways. Yeah. It, it for sure can look bad if you go in and ask for a ton of money and you're doing everything and you just want it right now. <laughs> um, and some banks, I think, wouldn't even entertain the idea of a self-perform from somebody who didn't have a long track record of doing that. Um, we were really fortunate, again, in that Texas Champion Bank saw that, you know, we had construction experience, not of the scale, but significant design and construction industry experience. And so I think um, after, I think in the right circumstances, it's attractive because you're eliminating one more point of risk. And I think after, after having done this project with those guys, I think it's clear that it was the right choice. Um, but I would tell you that in, again, my very limited experience, I think that's super unattractive to some lenders for a variety of reasons. And especially if you can't point to a bunch of successful examples of you having done it, it, it does raise a question for sure. So in this, with this idea that we talked about earlier, that you're always designing to some budget, right? And especially as an architect, that can be challenging because there's, you know, what you want to do, um, what you're able to do with your budget. And also just some, there's also not a lot of clarity all the time, especially now with the volatility and material prices and everything else. I mean, the budget number can be, a little bit abstract sometimes um, because you don't know what things are going to cost until you get the bid. And, you know, what you guys managed to do one, it, it looks exactly like the original renderings. And so it seems like you were able to pull off the original, at least final vision, but was there anything that you wanted to do that you weren't able to, or conversely, um, anything that you were able to do that um, surprised you, that you thought you might not have been able to pull off, but you made it happen? Uh, yes, there's a laundry list of things on both sides of that line. I mean, every day is a, a micro design exercise. So you're just, you know, some things aren't important, but it's your whole day and you focus on it and you you know, I would love to buy this little steel thingy to put there and it would be beautiful, but we really don't need it. And we'd be much better served with construction lumber. So it's a constant struggle to have the self-restraint to bypass tangents that would be really wonderful, but totally don't matter. Um, and then we've had a, a range of inclusions that uh, were aspirational that we got, which I'm super excited about. So 
the biggest is probably solar. Every single unit in this project has its own independent solar array, um, which is something that we hadn't included in the project budget and found a way to make it work, which was just phenomenal. Um, so all those arrays go to tenant credit, uh, go to credit tenants bills directly. And it's just, a, it's just a gimme. It's a nice to have, and it's the right thing to do. And it's a good mission fit for our project. Um, and that took a lot of fighting too. We've got one over one duplexes with two individual solar arrays on the roof. And for some administrative reason, CPS wasn't into that idea and had a long history of rejecting it. And I believe we were the first one that got approved after many, many, many meetings. So the stick to required to be able to reallocate those dollars to the solar arrays is, is like really significant. Um, and I think being in a position of so much control over the project allows that to happen. Like if I had to bill somebody else to do that, it would have cost more than the solar. So it's, that was a big win for us. A related question. What were the, um, non-negotiables for you, um, I mean, I know you mentioned the sort of shared pathway and the shared courtyard was a like a major pillar of the design. Um, obviously, reaching a particular square footage and probably showing a particular uh, profit number was part of it. But were there anything else? Was there anything else design wise that you knew that you wanted and had to work to keep? Um, you know, I don't know, windows, patios, uh, ceiling heights, any, any sort of little extra design extravagances that weren't needed, but you know, damn it, you're going to keep it. Um, yeah, there's a long list of those too. I, I think underlying all this is that, and it's impossible to describe, but we have a threshold of quality that we're trying to meet and every day requires a number of decisions to either cross or not cross that line. Um, and, and the only way to practice in that way is to control everything. But I think if I were to provide an example, if you look at our eaves, they're pretty unusual. I mean, they're, they're pretty normal, but you don't see it often in residential construction because it's more work. Um, but, you know, we've clung to those because they're pretty and, you know, at the end of the day, the cost is worth it and it's marginal and it differentiates what we're doing from hardy plank on a soffit with a soffit vent and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and, you know, and we have really simple building forms. Like one of the hypotheses is that if we make these building forms as simple as possible, no inside corners, all rectangles on a four foot module so that the sheets lay out. If we do that, we can give up on some other things and get a little more intricate with our Eve details. And, you know, all the windows and doors are driven by the historic district and they're wood, but, you know, that comes with expense And there. We've optimized that decision and selected the most beautiful windows we can afford that still meet those requirements. Um, but yeah, I'd say it's just a constant review of every implemented decision to make sure that things that matter get done right. Well, and I can speak one, I'd encourage everybody listening to go to the website and look at some pictures and bostoncommons.co. And 
you'll see kind of what we're talking about. These buildings are very elegant in their simplicity. And honestly, man, I've learned a lot from, from looking at it and watching it happen about um, sort of trying to limit the amount of decisions that are made, the number of decisions that are made, and kind of understanding that a lot of this stuff couldn't have been done as elegantly if you weren't on site. I mean, your the alignment of your control joints and your stucco with your windows and making sure that all of that's done very cleanly. And I know that you were standing there watching that happen every step of the way to make sure it was right. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's brutal. There's a yeah. trade-off for sure in getting that done. Um, and, you know, one detail I noticed uh, recently, uh, just because as you were getting everything finished up, was your uh, your exterior lighting selections, and you were very careful to select lights that have a similar shape and character to your dryer vents, so you you don't have a bunch of different shapes on your uh, on your facade shapes and materials on your facade uh, it actually takes a little bit of work driving by you have to really look and notice like what's a light and what's a dryer vent and i just i just love that detail that simple little thing just goes a long way to making these buildings um very very quiet and confident in their elegance even though they're very obviously um they're just, they're not extravagant at all i mean it looks it looks affordable but it also looks beautiful i mean you guys just did a fantastic job on this place well thank you i appreciate that very much um so one last thing on boston commons is there a like a single big lesson learned like pain point you know the thing that uh, when some kids interviewing you about it, you know, 40 years from now, you're going to say, oh, God, that one thing on Boston Commons, I learned X, Y and Z from this from this one thing. And I'll never do that again. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a long list, too. But I think I think to, you know, we make a ton of mistakes. I make a ton of mistakes every day. Today will be full of a ton of mistakes. And I think the important thing is to keep all those in context and you must take them as they come and overcome them. And, you know, the lesson out of that, I think, is that um, I think we've done a good job of saying there are no deal-breaking mistakes here, but there are a lot of little things I could point to that would just drive me and probably you nuts, but it, it's, it's a series of mistakes and, you know, there's thousands of mistakes in this. And I think the important thing is that you can't get hung up on mistake 17. You have to keep moving. Um, so yeah, you got, you got to move on to mistake 18. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like I would probably do the gravel section in the courtyard a little different to prevent weeds better and a bunch of little stuff like that. But, um, all in all, I think it's just about letting the mistakes fade away over time. <laughs> right. Well, uh, it's a beautiful project. Again, I encourage everybody to check out the website. Uh, if you're in San Antonio, um, drive by it, y'all. It's right off of Pine Street between Houston and Commerce. Uh, drive down Pine, 
uh, once you once you see the the beautiful restored uh, now stuccoed Caliche building, take a ride on Boston and drive down the street. It's a phenomenal project, and I think a beautiful um, kind of thesis project following your book and following all of the little projects that led up to this. Um, you said something one time, I think right as you were getting this project started that has stuck with me and I think influenced me a lot. And you said, you said, you know, after coming out of design school where everybody wants to be the next great architect, you said, I realized that I would rather own a bunch of good architecture than spend my whole career trying to create a little bit of great architecture. And I think that that is, you said it, you said it in passing, um, but it's so profound. And I think whether you're an architect or not, um, even if you're, even if you're not a design professional or don't have any design talent and are, you know, just playing, just playing the developer role, you've just got your developer hat on. Um, that's a, just a fantastic idea. The idea of, of owning good architecture and, and understanding what that means and making that um, part of the, the fabric of a business model. Um, so nothing but kudos from me, man, for this project. Uh, but it makes me wonder, uh, <laughs> maybe you don't want to, maybe you don't want this question. Um, because I know you're still installing toilet paper roll holders. Uh, but what's next, man? What's next for Ben Bowman? Okay, I'd love to answer that question for you. But just to expound a little bit on your last statement, I, I borrowed that, by the way. So somebody deserves credit. I can't remember who. But to elaborate, like, it's the people who are out there doing good architecture that's not great on a website that the whole world looks at architecture, that's really important stuff. And our community is built of, you know, one house at a time and the quality of that stuff really matters. And the greatest compliment I ever received that just totally makes my day and my week is when somebody that one of our residents comes up and says, I love living here. I just, I like it. Or the, I got one the other day that was essentially like, this place is a really good value. I mean, that's like just so important for society and it, it's fulfilling and it's, that's what drives me is that, I mean, like, yeah, it's nice to control on this stuff, but doing something for those other people in a way that's mutually beneficial is like, that's it. I can't imagine going back to the beginning of the conversation, like that brings me so much fulfillment to know that I was instrumental in doing that instead of an also important job contributing to a much bigger project, just the way that. I work personally is that, you know, I, I, that just brings me so much joy. Like, I love that. It's awesome. Um, so yeah, I think, so to getting to your, the question you actually asked, um, I am looking to do a 20 to 30 unit apartment building that is of really high quality. Uh, it's a product that you can't really find and anything that you can was built quite a long time ago and is, you know, not in the best shape. Um, so, and I'd love to be able to do that at a rental price that's totally reasonable. Like it's hard to capture some of those incentives on a small project just because they're so complex. You can't make sense of spending all the time to do it. But if we could create um, 20 to 30 units that could actually house a small family at a reasonable cost and still be good quality architecture, that would 
that'd be it for me. I would love that. So that's what we're aiming to do. And I hope we get there. Amen, brother. Well, Hey, we, uh, I like to end every show with, um, offering the guests an opportunity to, to give a call to action. Is there anything that you would like to see the audience do, uh, following this, following this interview, what would you encourage everybody to take on? Uh, I would say to just endeavor to spend the time to get your project where you want it to be and make small decisions that matter and, and try to aggregate all that. Um, Cause essentially on some level it's free, you know, you got to spend the time messing with these problems anyway. So if you can just inch it up one notch, you probably will see the difference at the end. Amen. I love that. Ben, thank you so much, man. Um, this has been this has been great. It's everything I hoped it would be and more. Wow, thanks, Adam. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, folks, that is all we've got for today. Thank you all so much for joining me. And keep your eye out. We'll have another episode back in the next few weeks. And remember, the Emerging Trends Housing Summit on January 31st, 2022. Mark your calendars. We'll see you there.